You're listening to audio from Park Church. More info and resources are online at parkchurch.org. Take care. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 28. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, Peter, on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his life? Or what shall a man give in return for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Gwen. Good morning, everyone. So good to see you. Glad you are here with us today, worshiping Jesus. Uh, My name is Chris, one of the pastors here at Park. And in just a moment, we're going to jump into Matthew 16. Just heard it read, uh, verses 13 to 28. And we are going to look at every one of those verses. And so I have a little disclaimer before the message. Here it is. Um, As you heard reading along there, this is a really, really thick passage. There's a lot of heavy theology in uh, this passage. So here's the disclaimer. There is no way I could ever like explain everything or properly apply everything in the short amount of time we have together, right? So for those of you who are kind of on the theology side of things, 
Sorry. Uh, for, for those of you who are more over on the application side of things, sorry. So you're both going to be coming at me. I, there's just no way we can do it all in this short amount of time. So I'm going to do the best I can, cover the highlights. And here's what we're going to do. We are going to pray to the Spirit of God. And we are going to ask the Spirit of God to speak and apply his word to every person in the room individually, how they need to hear God speak to them today. Even if I don't say certain things that you would hear exactly what you need to hear today from God. And God does that, believe me. And so uh, let's pray and let's ask for God's spirit to be here among us and to speak to us as we look at God's word together. So let's pray. Father God, we do come before you this morning. We are thankful that we can gather in this place in safety to worship you and praise you and give you glory. And now, God, we desire to hear from you. We desire to hear your voice speaking to our hearts, to our minds. God, we did not come here to hear a person speak. We didn't come here to hear a person sing. We came here to meet with you and hear you speak to us. So God... Holy Spirit, would you, would you say to everyone individually exactly what we need to hear from you today? Would you apply your word in ways that I never could? Would you do your work? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> Amen. Uh, so today we're coming to a turning point here in Matthew's gospel. There's a shift that's taking place. And you see that indicated down in verse 21. So if you would have your scriptures there, look at verse 21. Notice what it says. It says, from that time, Jesus began. All right. So something's new, something's shifting in the ministry and life of Jesus. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must Go to Jerusalem, right? Why? Why is he going to Jerusalem? You're going to see it's very different than what Peter thinks he should be going to Jerusalem to do, all right? Uh, that he must go to Jerusalem and do what? Well, suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. And then, look at this, be killed. And on the third day, be raised from the dead. You see, up to this point, Jesus has been slowly and carefully revealing to his disciples and the crowds more and more who he was and what he came to earth to do. He was doing that through his teachings, primarily through his parables. He was also doing that through his miracles. But now his teaching is going to shift from the crowds to his disciples, his 12. And he's going to begin to explicitly reveal to them not only what his mission is and ultimately what he came to do, but also what that means for them as his disciples. But not just them as his disciples, through them, what it also means for those of us who are disciples of Jesus, those of us who are followers of Jesus, roughly 2,000 years after the events that we see recorded here in Matthew's gospel. Okay, so in this passage, Jesus is going to clearly begin to reveal some fundamental realities, okay, for what it means to be a disciple, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And if you pay attention closely through the rest of our study of Matthew's gospel, you're going to see these themes are going to continue to be unpacked all the way to the end 
of the gospel, all right? So this is kind of laying foundation for where, we, where we'll be going through the rest of our study of Matthew. So basically, if, you, if you're taking notes, you can write this down. There's four kind of fundamental realities that we're going to see revealed to us for what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Four fundamental realities. All right, here you go. Number one, reality number one. Disciples of Jesus are those who accept Jesus for who he truly is. A disciple of Jesus is someone who is willing to accept Jesus for who he truly is. This is where discipleship begins. This is the starting point. Accepting Jesus on his terms, not our own terms. Look at this starting in verse 13. We'll go 13 to 17. It says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? So here Jesus is referring to himself as the son of man. That's another way of talking about the Messiah. That's an Old Testament term for the, the one who was promised to come and be, be the Messiah, be the one who establishes God's kingdom on earth. Right? So Jesus is saying, who do people say that I am? What are people saying about me? It's not that Jesus didn't know, right? Remember, he's God, by the way. Uh, it's not that he wasn't aware of what people were saying. He was using it as a way to kind of get into a conversation. So notice what they say. And they, the disciples said, some say you're John the Baptist. So John the Baptist has been beheaded, killed, and he's been brought back to life, maybe. Uh, or others say Elijah, right? Or uh, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. There, there were Old Testament prophecies that a prophet in the line of the prophets would one day show up, right? And, and prophesy God's word to God's people. So they're saying, maybe he's that prophet. But then look what it says. And he, Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? It's like, that's nice. Okay, they're wrong, um, right? Kind of wrong, not all the way wrong, but a little bit wrong. But who do you say that I am? And Peter, being the brash one, being like the, the spokesman for the disciples, says this. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, all right, that's the Greek word for the Messiah or the anointed one. So he's saying, you are the promised Messiah. You are the promised anointed one, the one we've been waiting for. Now, that doesn't mean he fully understands what that means, as you're going to see in just a little bit. And then he goes on. Beyond that, he says, the son of the living God. Okay, now don't read into that like he understood the Trinity at this point, okay? That comes later on, like understanding that Jesus is the second member of the Godhead, right? Uh, that, that comes later on, but son of God here simply means representative of God, one closely connected to God, one sent by God. You are very, very special to God. You've been sent by God. And notice how Jesus responds. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, or Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. There's no way you could come to this understanding and even say those things unless God has done a miracle in your heart. And that's what it says. For flesh and blood's not revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human teacher, but my Father who is in heaven. Now, 
Notice, it wasn't enough for people to recognize Jesus as a prophet, right? He was that, but he was much more than that. It isn't enough to say that he's a great religious leader or a great teacher or an excellent moral example. He was and is all of those things. But what elicited praise and excitement from Jesus was when Peter landed on the core of who Jesus truly is. Even though Peter didn't fully understand what it meant that he was the Messiah, that he was the son of the living God. The fact that he was able to say that was an evidence that God had done a miracle in his heart. He says, for flesh and blood's not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Jesus was excited that he was in the ballpark of understanding who he was. Isn't that encouraging? Like that we don't have to have it all figured out, right? To, to, to follow Jesus and worship Jesus. And we're gonna see again, Peter gets rebuked for not fully uh, being aware of who Jesus truly is. But man, Jesus is excited about this. Now, in reference to Jesus, understanding Jesus' true identity and the importance of it, this is a matter of life and death, actually. Um, C.S. Lewis speaks about this in his book, Mere Christianity. Wouldn't be a sermon, a sermon without like a Lewis quote. So we got to throw that in. All right. So from Mere Christianity, probably his most popular work. Speaking of the identity of Jesus, he says this. I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. Wow. Tell us what you really think. All right. And he says, this is a foolish thing to say about Jesus. Here it is. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says that's foolish. Now here's why. That is one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, right? Brilliant. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg, that's great. <laughs> Man, tell us what you really think. Or else he would, he would have to be the devil of hell. Either he's a lunatic or he's Satan. Wow. You, you can say that about Jesus. Either he's a lunatic or he's the devil. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, as the religious leaders did. Or, speaking of Jesus again, you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. And then he goes on. He has not left that open to us. Jesus has not left that open to us to just say he's a great teacher. He did not intend to. And he finishes up with, now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend. And consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. That conclusion is ultimately where all of the disciples land as well, of course, except for Judas. They landed there because they saw the resurrected Christ, which proved 
everything said, uh, Jesus had said about himself was true. Now, you may, you may be here as someone who is not yet a follower of Jesus. And it, it, that can sound super arrogant that, that Lewis is like, you have to believe based on these things. And you're kind of like, wait, whoa, don't, er, hold on. There's more. We could talk about other things for sure. But here's all I would ask you to do. Would you just consider the claims he just made? Think about it. Think about what he said and how he spoke about Jesus and, and how like this guy's not going to be a, a great moral religious leader. He's not going to be a great prophet. He's not going to be a great example if he's lying about himself this way by saying, I am the Messiah. I am the promised son of God. See, the most important question anyone could ever ask you and the most important question you will ever have to answer is this, what do you believe about Jesus Christ? And you might respond with like, well, I don't really think about Jesus. I just kind of avoid him altogether. Here's the, I appreciate that. I understand what you're saying. But listen, honestly, if you're a thinking person, you really can't avoid him either. He, he's had too big of an impact on history to avoid him. More books have been written about him. More songs have been sung to him. More charitable organizations have been established because of his influence. More people have placed their eternal hope in him than any other person in all of history. You simply just can't avoid him. You're going to have to come to some kind of conclusion as to who Jesus truly is. And this is where discipleship to Jesus begins. It begins with acknowledging who Jesus truly is, turning to him for salvation, forgiveness of sins, and relying on him as your only hope in this life and the life to come. Jesus himself said it like this in John 14, 6. Listen to these words and like listen to how exclusive Jesus is. It's not me being exclusivist, it's Jesus. Listen to what he says. John 14, 6. I am the way, the way, very exclusive. There's one way, Jesus says, and the truth. What? Can we say that in Denver? Are we allowed to say that? The truth and the life. And then he says, no one comes to the Father. No one comes to heaven. No one enters into eternal life. No one is entering into the presence of God the Father except through me. Now that's the claim of Jesus Christ. That's not me making something up about him. That's what Jesus said about himself. And here's the good news. The, the apostle Paul himself said in Romans 10, 11, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved. And listen, when Paul says that, you can believe him. Because remember who Paul used to be. His name used to be Saul, and he was leading the charge against the early church. He was actually having Christians killed and imprisoned. He was the one standing by and giving assent to the very first Christian martyr's death, Stephen. It says that Paul stood by and gave, or Saul stood by and gave assent to that. And then the resurrected Christ showed up, knocked him off a donkey and said, you are mine, Right? And so when, when Saul slash Paul says, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord can be saved, he knew what he was talking about. 
That would include you. That would include me. This is where discipleship begins, accepting Jesus for who he truly is. Not just a great teacher, not just a prophet, not just a moral example or a religious leader, but the son of God who left heaven, took on flesh to live the life that we should have lived but have absolutely horribly failed to who took the punishment on the cross that we deserve for our own rebellion, our own sin against God, who died for our sins and was raised the third day, having victory over Satan and sin and death. This is where it begins. My question for you is, will you begin that journey today? Will you begin following Jesus today? Will you begin as a disciple by believing that Jesus is all he claimed to be and all that the apostles claim him and claim him to be, and as he's proved himself to be in history. Now, that's just where it begins. That's just reality one. It's not where it ends. There is so much more to what it means to be a follower or disciple of Jesus. And that's what leads us to the second reality. Reality number two, write this down, is disciples of Jesus are a part of a global movement, the church, that has been authorized and empowered by God. This is so cool. Disciples of Jesus are a part of a global movement called the church that have been authorized and empowered by God. Listen, we are not called to follow Jesus alone. We've been invited in. We've been placed into a community of people that Jesus in this passage calls the church. The Greek word there is ekklesia, the called out ones, right? Notice this in verses 18 to 20. Look what it says. Now, remember the context. Peter had just said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus is like, that's right. Now, Peter, let me tell you who you are. Let me flip it on you. This is who you are. Here's your identity. You are Peter, kind of going from the name Simon to now Simon Peter, kind of like a nickname. Peter, the Greek word for Peter is, is rock. It's very similar to that idea of rock. And so I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, you, Peter, this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, here's what's happened with this verse. Those of us who have grown up in Protestant churches, um, some of you may have grown up Catholic, uh, but, but there's been a lot of Protestant theologians and pastors through the years that have kind of done mental gymnastics and verbal gymnastics to deal with this passage. Because we're like, man, we can't like give assent to this idea of Peter being the first pope and, and, and like giving credit to this idea of a papal succession and all that stuff. Listen, you don't have to, to actually accept what Jesus said real plainly, right? It doesn't, just because he said, you're the rock and on you, I'm going to build the church. It doesn't mean that Peter's the first pope or he's an Aaron or anything like that. It's the simple idea that, hey man, I'm going to start something really amazing with you and through you. It's called the church. And with your other apostle brothers, we are going to see God do amazing things in and through you, through this church. And this church is going to spread and it's going to be so powerful because I have authorized it and I have empowered it that as this church grows and grows and grows and more and more and more people come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's going to butt up against the enemy's territory hell's territory and not even the gates of hell will be able to keep you from storming into that kingdom 
and seeing millions and millions and millions of people come to faith in Christ. Aren't gates defensive? Like if you have gates set up, it's not about keeping necessarily keeping people in unless you have a little kid or dog, right? <laughs> Typically, gates in the ancient world were set up to keep people out, keep the enemy out. And that's the imagery. The church is advancing. The church isn't slowing down. It's spreading. It's growing. It's entering into the kingdom of darkness. And not even the gates of hell, which I have to say are pretty powerful, can stop the authorized and empowered church of God. Amen? Can't even stop it because God is on the move through his church. And then he goes on with this idea of authority. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Keys in the Bible are always pictures or metaphor of authority, right? So we have a number of staff people on our church staff. They all have keys to this building. Why? Because they've got a certain amount of authority within the church. So they're able to come with keys and open it up. We don't just hand out keys to everybody, all right? You may have authority in other places to do certain things, but, but the staff has a different kind of authority to, to this building, right? Why? Because they, they are staff. They have a position here. They work here. They serve here. They do different things here that some of us don't do, right? That key kind of symbolizes authority. So they've been given this authority. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And look what it says. And whatever you bind, that could also be translated close or lock on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose or open up on earth shall be loosened in heaven. In other words, I've given you power and authority to do amazing things. We're going to see heaven come on earth through the ministry of Christ's church. Then he strictly charged the disciples, tell no one that he was the Christ. Why? Man, do you know what it means to be the Christ? Do you know what it means to be the Messiah? Do you know what it means to call him the Christ? You're saying he's the one true king, which means Caesar isn't. And in Rome, that gets you killed, as we'll see in the life of Jesus. And later, almost all of the disciples, and even in the life of Peter, who church history tells us that as they were going to martyr him, they were going to crucify him. And he said, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. Crucify me upside down. Yeah. He has some slip-ups. We're going to see that here in a minute. But man, that's a rock. That's a rock right there. Right? So here's what Peter is telling, or Jesus is telling Peter and all other disciples of Jesus down through the ages, which would include you, Park Church. You are part of my body, Jesus is saying, the church. I'm empowering you, authorizing you to be my representatives in the world. You have nothing to fear. Church, we have nothing to fear. Not even Satan and his kingdom can stop what you are a part of. Do you believe that? Think about how that would radically transform how we live in the world if we really believe nothing could stop us because we are authorized and empowered by God. And Jesus goes on, and my church will advance until I return. His church is never going to stop taking enemy ground. The gates of hell can never prevail against his church. So I hope that makes a lot more sense of the Great Commission. 
At the end of Matthew's gospel, Matthew 28, 18, what does he say to his disciples? Some of the last words we have recorded to his disciples. What's he say? All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now, therefore, go. Why? Because I have all authority and power, and I'm passing that on. I'm sharing that. You're walking in that. You're living in that. You are embodied in that. In the church, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, and do what? Make disciples. That's what the mission is. Of all nations, That word's not just talking about countries, that's talking about ethnicities. People of all different ethnicities are gonna make up his church. That's why that beautiful vision and revelation of people from every tongue, every tribe, every language, every nation around the throne of God singing praises to him because the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. And go and make disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. There's the Trinity. Okay, now they're getting it, all right? Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All that I have commanded you. That's how we make disciples. And here's such good news. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And until the end of the age, the gates of hell shall not prevail. The fact that we are here as his church is proof and evidence of that. This was 2,000 years ago, and here we are, far removed from Jerusalem, far removed from the empty tomb, but the gates of hell cannot prevail against his church. Why? Because we're empowered. How are we empowered? By the Spirit of God. Do you know you are, you personally, individually, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, are the temple of God. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He indwelled you the moment you came to faith in Christ, the moment you were born again. You are the temple of God. Collectively, we are the temple of God. I love how N.T. Wright talks about it. So therefore, because you are the temple of God, everywhere you step, When your foot hits the ground, that's heaven and earth coming together. That's what the temple was. Heaven and earth coming together. Every time your foot hits the ground as the church, as the people of God, that's heaven and earth coming together. That's how the kingdom of God spreads as his people go out into the world and are salt and light. But we need power for it, right? So Jesus said, go into all the world, make disciples, but wait. Don't try and do this on your own. Don't try and do this in your own power. He says in in Acts 1, you're going to receive power. The Greek word there is dunamis, the word we get dynamite from. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And then you're going to go and be my witnesses. Not until then. You can't do this. Like You cannot prevail. You know, take over the gates of hell and, and conquer enemy land without the power of the Spirit of God. Then you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Go start right where you are. Judea, the surrounding area, Samaria, further out, and then to the ends of the earth. Again, that's how we are here. It's because this has proven true. So disciples of Jesus, you are a part of something that cannot fail. All right, now, make sure we're thinking properly about that. That's his church. Be fair here. This is speaking of the universal church. Okay, be careful. 
Jesus isn't saying that every local church will continue to advance. We know through history that is not the case, right? We know that just through driving around the city of Denver, open your eyes, right? Rather than just looking for the local new restaurant or bar or whatever, like see how many empty church buildings there are in the city. How many of them now are weed shops, right? Like, so, so yeah, this promise isn't about every local church. We even have warnings from Jesus about specific churches in Revelation chapter two and three. He's like, hey church, wake up. Uh, it was mentioned earlier, like Revelation three, Jesus is knocking on the door of the church of Laodicea, the imagery there. What does that mean about the church? They had kicked Jesus out. He's outside knocking, hey, I'd love to come in and be a part of, I'd love to come in and hang out with you and fellowship with you and love you and care for you, but you've kicked me out. He says, if you don't repent, you're gone. He said that multiple times. So there's no promise for local churches, but man, there is promise for the universal church. You're a part of something that will never fail. Be encouraged. His global church will not be extinguished from the earth. It's interesting, if you really pay attention to what's going on in the world right now, you'll notice all the places where the church is exploding the most in the world, those are the places that they're experiencing the most persecution for being followers of Jesus. Do the research yourself, you'll see it. Northern Africa, places like that, Middle East, Asia. Man, intense persecution. But the church is exploding. Why? because the gates of hell cannot prevail about against it. And, and it has a way of refining disciples, by the way, too. It makes them a little more serious about their faith. Sanctifies them a little bit more, and the church grows and spreads. Number three, reality three. We doing all right? All right, cool. Because it's about to get intense. Here we go. Disciples of Jesus are called to lay down their lives in order to follow Jesus. Wow. Here's what I want to do. I have a lot more that I could say in my notes, but I just want to read these verses. I think they apply themselves, especially with the power of the Spirit. Let's, let's read starting in verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And here's how you know Peter didn't fully understand what Messiah meant. <laughs> and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Yikes, not a good thing. Rebuking God, right? Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never be. Why was Peter saying that? Well, because his view of the Messiah was the exact same view as the religious leaders. That the Messiah was going to show up, raise up an army, violently overthrow Rome, and establish a physical earthly kingdom of God right there on earth. And so Peter was no different than the religious leaders in his understanding of Messiah and look what Jesus says. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Little hint, you never want to hear Jesus say that to you. <laughs> can we all agree on that? We all come from a lot of different places, a lot of, but I'm pretty sure we can agree on that. 
get behind me, Satan, which is basically the exact same thing Jesus literally said to Satan in chapter 4, verse 10, after Jesus has been fasting, right, for 40 days, 40 nights, he's worn out, he's exhausted, Satan shows up to tempt him. One of the temptations that says in verse 10 that Satan took him to the highest mountain and showed him the kingdoms of the world and said, if you will just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all of this. And Jesus responds, get behind me, basically. But, but here's the deal. How stupid is Satan? He already owned all of that. Like, that's not even a temptation in a sense. Like, Jesus is like, that's already mine. Get behind me, right? Now keep going. What does he say? For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples. Now this is where it gets intense and just listen to the words. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up his cross and follow me. What it means to be a follower of Jesus is that you take up your cross and you follow him. You deny yourself. Those are the words of Jesus. Not something I'm making up. For whoever would save his life, like in other words, play it safe and be careful and not really get too serious about Jesus, will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, and that was real in that time. You pick up your cross and follow. When you say pick up your cross in the ancient world, everybody knew what that meant. You were going to your death. That literally happened to all of the apostles, except for a few. But whoever loses his life for my sake will actually find a life. When you deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus, you actually find a life. You lose your human understanding and cultural awareness of life, and you actually gain life that's really life. For what would it profit a person if he or she gains the whole world and forfeits your soul? Well, what shall a man or woman give in return for their soul? What can you actually own that you can trade back to get your soul back? And the answer, it's a rhetorical question. Nothing. There is nothing on earth more valuable than your soul. And Jesus is saying, if you choose to go the world's way and go your own way, man, you, there's a lot of things you can accomplish. There's a lot of things you can do. Man, you can get a lot of stuff. But at the end of the day, when it really matters and you're standing before God, you're going to wish you went the other way. You're going to wish you had denied yourself, picked up your cross, and followed him. See, to be a follower of Jesus is to be somebody who lays down their life to follow Jesus, to walk in the way of Jesus. And it's not going to be done perfectly. Look at Peter. You're the Messiah. You're the son of God. Get thee behind me, Satan. Wait a minute. Like, what? You just said I'm the rock. Now I'm Satan. Can you relate to that? Like, that is so me. Like, up and down and, yeah, Jesus, no, I'm good. 
Later on, he's going to deny when Jesus is being falsely accused and tried, he's going to deny him three different times over a period of a few hours. So, man, like you're not, it's not going to be perfect, but it is this daily understanding that to follow Jesus isn't just like checking a box in a card someday when you were a kid at Christian camp. It's not just showing up on Sunday and doing the church thing. It's a life that says, I'm denying myself. It's going into an office place and saying, I'm denying myself. I'm not here to climb, just simply climb the corporate ladder. I'm not here just to fill up my bank account. It's someone who says, my life belongs to Jesus. And while I'm working, and maybe while I'm being successful, I am also very well, that's all very aware that that's all by the grace of God. And I'm gonna leverage any power or authority or wealth or influence I have for the kingdom of God. That's what it means to lay down your life for him. It doesn't mean you have to necessarily give everything away and have nothing. It just simply means that those things don't have you. Jesus has you. And those things are all just tools and gifts and things that are used for, yeah, your own joy, others, uh, for other people to experience joy, but man, as resources that are used for the kingdom and the glory of God. Last one. Reality number four. Disciples of Jesus will be rewarded eternally for their sacrifices in this life. Man, you're like, bro, you are not selling me on this Jesus thing very well right now, right? This is mad. But this is what I love about Jesus. Like marketing and commercials and all that, like everybody's product is the best thing. It's the answer to all the problems in the world. And Jesus is like, hey, you want to join my, my crew? Deny yourself and pick up a cross and follow me. Get ready to die. Whoa. What a sales pitch, Right? But man, we're human beings and we need to know this is worth it, right? And Jesus knows that. He knows we need to know this is worth it. So he provides that. We're gonna be rewarded. Look at verse 27 and 28. For the son of man is going to come with his angels. This is talking about the second coming, Christ's return in glory of his father. And he will repay each person. Nobody gets out of this according to what he or she has done. Now that's both good and bad. For those who have chosen, like, I don't want to pick up Jesus' cross. I don't, I don't want to follow him. I don't want to believe in him. I want to live my way or go my way to God. Okay. And Jesus is saying, you're going to be repaid for that. And you're going to get ultimately what you want in the end. No God. For those who say, I'm going to deny myself, pick up my cross, follow Jesus. There's going to be rewards for that. And it's going to be well worth it because Jesus is using it as motivation. So it must be pretty great, right? I don't fully understand rewards in the New Testament, right? But man, Jesus talks about being eternally rewarded more than anybody else next to the Apostle Paul. Sometimes they're referred to as crowns, like a victor wins a race. You get a crown on your head, like that kind of idea of the ancient Olympic Games, But I don't think anybody fully, totally understands the idea of actual rewards for living for Christ and following him. Here's what I do know about it, though. I went to seminary to learn this. Being rewarded is better than not being rewarded. That's a lot of money to get a degree to learn that. Right? And it must be pretty amazing if Jesus is saying, 
hey, pick up your cross, be willing to die for my cause, and believe me, you won't regret it. You won't regret it. Park Church, you will not regret it. Let's pray. God, as we are here again, we just want to say again, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that even when fallible human beings are responsible for opening up your word and sharing it with other human beings, you are so good that you send your spirit to take those words and drive them into our hearts and minds. And actually, if we listen and respond we can actually be transformed as human beings from the inside out to more and more reflect your glory in the world and more and more experience the life that is really life, life in Christ. And so God, we want to be a people that hear your word, that, that responds to your word and obeys your word. And so God, in this moment, may we hear you speaking to us by your spirit. Help us all hear individually what we need to hear and then corporately as a body what we all need to hear together. So God, do that work in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. Heart Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media at Heart Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at partchurch.org. Peace and love.